Welcome to Winter Living Theology 2018, Racial Justice and the Demands of Discipleship, presented by Father Brian Massengale, produced for the greater glory of God by the Jesuit Institute South Africa. So good morning and welcome to all of you this morning to Winter Living Theology, especially those who are here uh, for the first time. There's a couple of new faces. You're very welcome. Winter Living Theology is an annual lecture series across uh, Southern Africa, because there's also some lectures in Swaziland, and uh, the program is brought in collaboration between the Jesuit Institute and the Southern African Catholic Bishops' Conference. For those who are social media addicts, especially on Twitter, we're using a hashtag for Winter Living Theology, so if you're going to tweet or say anything, we would uh, encourage you to use the hashtag WLT, very easy, 2000. And 18, WLT 2018. So just before we begin, maybe we can just take a moment uh, to be still, to put ourselves or to remind ourselves that we are in the presence of God. Lord our God, as we come together at the beginning of this time of reflection on racial justice, a painful and a difficult topic. We pray that you bless us with a spirit of generosity and openness. That you help us to listen as St. Benedict told us with the ear of the heart. And in so doing, lead us along the path, the journey of conversion that you always Invite your disciples to walk on. We pray that you bless Father Brian, that you bless all of us gathered here, our family, our friends, and you bless the people of South Africa and the people of the United States as we grapple and seek your justice. We ask this through Christ our Lord. We have received uh, many emails and many questions about the topic uh, for 2018, racial justice and the demand of discipleship. I think it's a painful fact that we live in a deeply wounded and divided society on so many levels. And if we scratch the surface of this wounded society, we notice that racism is almost at the intersection of all these divisions. Many recent and recurring events in South Africa remind us of this. Just last week, which continues, I noticed to be a big raging debate on social media and indeed in the mainstream media with the comments of the EFF leader, Julius Malema, that most Indians in South Africa are racist. And we know in South Africa, for the first time recently, we had the conviction and a jail term given to a woman, Vicky Momberg, for racism. The Northwest Coffin case is another example, or the estate agent Penny Sparrow all remind us of the brokenness in and around us. So I think racism is something that we grapple with if we're honest with ourselves daily in South Africa, what to say, what not to say. We are always defining things in terms of race. But it's not only in South Africa. Racism seems to rear its head more and more across the globe. Europe and the United States of America are just two examples. 
I'm honored this morning to introduce to you Father Brian Massingale, an academic, but not just an academic, a pastor, who this year is visiting us to present Winter Living Theology. Father Brian Massingale is a priest of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. He's not a Jesuit. Many people think that he's a Jesuit. He will tell you very quickly he's not a Jesuit, even though he works with Jesuits. And professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University in New York. He's also a senior fellow at the Fordham Center for Ethics Education. And this year, I'd also like to thank Fordham University for their contribution to the series as a co-host with the Jesuit Institute and the South African Catholic Bishops Conference. And I'd like uh, Father Brian to make special mention of the chair of your department, Professor Patrick Hornbeck, who has uh, had great enthusiasm and indeed support of you and uh, bringing you to South Africa for this series. So if you convey our thanks uh, to Patrick most especially. Father Brian studied at Marquette University as well as St. Francis Seminary and the Catholic University of America and earned his PhD at the Alfonsianum University in Rome. He's also the recipient of three honorary doctorates. He's a leader in the field of theological ethics. He's the past convener of the Black Catholic Theological Symposium and a former president of the Catholic Theological Society of America. He serves on the editorial board of Theological Studies, one of the English-speaking world's premier Catholic journals of theology. And he's also served on the editorial boards of the Journal of Moral Theology and the Journal of the Society of Christian Ethics. But in addition to his academic pursuits, I think Father Brian strives to be a scholar activist through serving faith-based groups and advancing justice in society. He's a noted authority on issues of social and racial justice, having addressed numerous national Catholic conferences and lectured at colleges and universities across the United States. He's also served as a consultant to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, providing theological reflections on issues such as criminal justice, capital punishment, environmental justice, and affirmative action. His contributions to justice and the advocacy for justice have been recognized on many, many occasions, too many to mention, yeah, all this will turn into a lecture itself. He has also received numerous recognitions from the Catholic Press Association for award-winning commentaries on contemporary social issues from a faith perspective. Father Brian, in his award-winning book, Racial Justice and the Catholic Church, which the Pauline sisters have got copies of, says, we are all wounded by the sin of racism. How can we struggle together against an evil that harms us all? And in this book, he explores how Catholic social teaching has been used and at times not used to promote reconciliation and justice. But fundamentally, this book points us towards ways in which we can seek healing when it comes to issues of racial justice. Confronting racism is painful yet essential if we are to seek personal healing and heal the brokenness in our society and in our church. And so in these days, Father Brian will hopefully help us to begin as God's people to embark upon this painful yet essential journey, one that is demanded more and more urgently, it seems to me, especially here in South Africa, by our faith and discipleship 
of Jesus Christ. So, Father Brian Massingale, you're very welcome, and thank you uh, for being with us here in South Africa. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, sir. Thank you, Russ, for that generous introduction, and good morning. good morning. It's a joy and a pleasure to be with you here in South Africa. This is not my first visit to South Africa. My first visit was back in 2008, when there was an HIV conference that was hosted in Johannesburg, and I was here, but only for a brief time, only for four days. It was an international conference sponsored by the Ecumenical Alliance Agency. And so this time I get to come back for a more extended visit and get to see far more of the beautiful country here. And so it's a joy to be with you during these days. And I thank you, especially the, for uh, the, the members of the Jesuit Institute for their hospitality invitation, their members of the South African Bishops Conference and of their staff who are here. I thank them for their support in, in my being here. It's really a joy to be with you today during these days. Father Russ mentioned the award-winning book that I wrote, Racial Justice and the Catholic Church. And people often ask me, why did I write that book? And I wrote the book for two reasons, one professional and one personal. Professionally, I wrote the book because as Father Russ hinted, almost every social justice concern that we face as a church and as a people is entangled with or exacerbated by racial injustice. You don't have to scratch the surface whether our concerns are about immigration or human trafficking or educational disparity or any other host of issues. All of them are entangled with and or exacerbated by racial injustice. And so if the church, if the Christian community doesn't get race right, then our social justice ministry and advocacy is rendered ineffective or compromised. But the other reason I wrote it was a more personal reason. Obviously, I am an African-American. Obviously, I am black. And if my faith has nothing to say about issues that affect me daily in ways that are overt and covert, then I'm wasting my time. Why be Catholic if my Catholic faith can't speak to something which is so personal and existential. And so this is the reason why I wrote the book, and I wrote it deliberately so it wouldn't just be read by theologians with PhDs after their name. I wanted to write it so that people in the pew could actually read it and understand it as well. And so some people who are more academically oriented said, oh, Father, you're writing in a too lowbrow a way. I said, well, so did Jesus, and we're still reading his work, so we're okay. Why are we here and why engage this issue? We are here because as people of faith, we share in Jesus's concern for the least among us. We are told in Matthew's gospel that in the end of time, when we come to meet our maker, that we are not going to be judged by how many programs we attended or how many degrees we've earned. We will be judged by our concern for the least of our sisters and brothers. 
And if we are going to actually live that concern for the least among us, then we must have a concern for racial justice. It's something we cannot escape because one of the reliable impacts or effects of racism is that it renders people vulnerable to social discriminations and social injustice. And so if we are going to honor Christ's concern for the least among us, then in South Africa and in the United States of America, then we must have a concern for racial justice and racism. Now, I just mentioned in the United States and in South Africa, so let me talk a little bit about why is this American here talking about racism in South Africa? One of the things I hope you understand by the time we get done with our series is you're going to find out that America and South Africa, when it comes to issues of race, I like to say that we're like cousins. That even though there are differences, there are deep family resemblances. And so sometimes it's easier to look at an issue when I talk about the United States, and then you can make the connection, oh, that's not really talking about us, but I talked last night in Pretoria, and it was interesting that when I talked about things that were going on in America, people were going, hmm. That there are deep similarities and sometimes distressing similarities between the racial discourse and problems in the United States of America and what goes on here in, in, in South Africa. And even though we want to think in the United States that we've gotten beyond some of our racial divisions, we have a president who reminds us that we have not. And you'll hear his name mentioned a few times during our time together. Why are we here? We are here because of the summons of our faith. Pope John Paul II, now St. Pope John Paul II, when he paid his final pastoral visit to the United States in 1999, he gave a homily in St. Louis, Missouri. In the context of calling Catholics to be unconditionally pro-life, he gave a powerful summons to the church and the people of the United States. He said, as the new millennium approaches, there remains a great challenge facing the whole country to put a for an end to every form of racism, a plague which is one of the most persistent and destructive evils of the nation. He spoke in bold, uncompromising, forthright ways. And I was watching the Pope's homily on the Catholic cable television and, in the United States. And I was thrilled to hear the Pope's words because I was saying, well, my, my goodness, the Pope and I are on the same page. We agree with each other. That's wonderful. And then I should have turned off the TV because afterwards they had the news presenter interviewing a very official looking Monsignor who is dressed far more officially than I am. He would never be in a hoodie like I am, but you know, it's kind of cold right now. So I hope you're not offended. But anyway, the news presenter was interviewing the presenter and the news presenter asked the, asked the Monsignor, Monsignor, what do you make of the Pope's very strong stand against euthanasia? And the Monsignor responded, 
Well, this should come as no surprise to Catholics because we are committed to the sanctity of life from the beginning of life in the womb until its natural end. And Monsignor, what do you make of the Holy Father's impassioned appeal against the death penalty? Well, again, this should be of no surprise to Catholics because even though the Pope knows that the majority of American Catholics don't agree with him, he refuses to compromise on our faith because this is something we believe in the human dignity of all, even of those who are imprisoned. And Monsignor, what do you make of the Holy Father's curious remarks about racism? Well, this goes to show how ill-served the Holy Father is by his advisors, since racism is no longer a pressing issue in the United States. The call of our faith is clear. But the denial among our people is also strong. I have taken to say that there are three obstacles that we have to face if we're going to have an honest engagement with racism. Three obstacles. The first is that we don't know what we are talking about, especially in a society that's in the United States, we sometimes want to say after President Obama's election, we're a post-racial society. In South Africa, you said, before I was here in 2008, it's my second visit to South Africa, I turned on the, on the news reports and they're always talking about the new South Africa, the rainbow nation. We've abolished apartheid, we've abolished the, the obvious laws against, racial, against racism, there were for racism, so we don't know what we're talking about. The second obstacle, we don't know how to talk about it especially in interracial situations. I know that blacks, we talk about race among ourselves in the United States. And I know that whites in the United States talk about race among themselves. And Latinos and Asians talk about race among themselves. But when we come together in an interracial situation, there's a strange code of civility that prevails where for fear of saying the wrong thing or being misunderstood, we don't talk about it. We just want to be nice to each other. So we don't know what we're talking about. We don't know how to talk about it. And the third obstacle we face is that we don't really want to talk about it. Because if we talk about race honestly, then we have, to, we have to talk about the real reasons for the core disparities that exist between racial groups. And that conversation quickly becomes very uncomfortable. There is no way to have an honest conversation about racism and racial injustice without making people uncomfortable. And because we don't want to be uncomfortable, 
We'd rather not talk about it at all. Because when we deal with race, we have to deal with very strong and conflicted emotions. Almost no other topic raises difficult emotions as it does when we deal with racism. I teach a course in the university on uh, racial justice and the demands of faith. And there came a point in a conversation, where in, a, in my lecture, I noticed that the students' faces had just, their eyes had glazed over and they stopped listening because it was, and I realized it wasn't because the concepts were so difficult. What happened was that they were feeling so many different things. And so I stopped my lecture and I simply said, what are you feeling? And as they called out emotions, I just listed them on the board. We filled the, the chalkboard with feelings like this. They said they felt nervous, defensive, angry. Angry is a very common word, common emotion. Helpless, afraid. Tense, worry, guilty, confused, hopeless, overwhelmed, paralyzed. Many of my wife's students said they felt embarrassed or ashamed. If you feel these things over the next three days, that makes you normal. It makes you normal. There is no way we can talk about these things honestly without there being some kind of emotional response within. So turn to the person next to you and say, you're going to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Good. So at the very end, when you fill out your evaluation and you say, the presenter made us feel uncomfortable, remember he told you the truth right now. <laughs> because there's no way we can do this work well without being uncomfortable. So if you feel these things that makes you normal, feel the feeling, acknowledge it within, and then come back to us it can change. And we do this because there's no way we cannot do it. Because we want to, and another thing we often hear when we talk about race is, why are you talking about this? Isn't this the past? Let the past be in the past. If we talk about this, this makes us, it just brings people, makes more division. I get this all the time in the United States and saying, like, why are you always talking about slavery? Why are you always talking about racial segregation? That was the past. It's over with. And so I try to find a way to help my students understand that the past is not so far distant. 
And the way in which I tried doing it was to picture the experience of black people in the United States from our beginnings, from the time the first Africans came to what was in the United States in 1619, to the present as if it were a foot-long ruler, 12 inches, that's about 26, 28 centimeters. And when you do that, you see that the first seven and a half inches from 1619 to 1865 was the period of slavery. That's a full seven and a half inches of the ruler. And during that time, black people were legal property. Our labor was exploited. We could be sold at any time by the master's whim. And we were only considered three-fifths of a person for the purposes of census and taxation. At the end of slavery, there was a brief period of one inch called Reconstruction, where blacks were given some limited freedoms. That was followed in 1896 by a Supreme Court decision that required mandatory racial segregation in every aspect of American life from cemeteries, to schools, to parks, to churches, mandatory segregation. And it was a period of second-class humanity, and it was, and it was uh, characterized by brutal, sadistic violence, which we'll talk about later. It was only in 1968 that that came to an end. And we now live in a situation that we call formal legal equality, where legally discrimination is against the law. But informally, the attitudes of the past still continue. And during times of extreme social distress, all of the ugliness of the past comes into the present. There has only been a covering over, not a fundamental change. We have a lot more experience of racial injustice. Or another way to put this, because I come from a part of the United States where during wintertime, Sometimes our shallow lakes and ponds, they freeze over, so we had to learn when was it safe to go out onto the ice. And so we were taught a rhyme that went like this. One inch, keep off. Two inches, one may. Three inches, small groups. Four inches, okay. It's only when the ice is four inches thick that it's then safe enough to go out on it. If it's only one inch thick, it's too weak to hold the weight of even one person, and so you fall through, you fall into the freezing water, and you die. We in the United States are skating on ice that's only one inch thick. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that in times of social distress, all the ugliness of the past comes rushing through. 
Now, later I'm going to talk a bit about some about South Africa. You're into apartheid took place even closer, like 1994. Your ice is only one half of an inch thick. So when people say, get over it, it's not that far away. So the past is not so distant. We can't get over the past until we confront it. And so I invite you to undertake the journey of the next three days by posing this question. How do we work together against an evil that harms us all? though it harms us in different ways. All of us, racism harms us all. We're not harmed in the same ways, but we are all scarred and wounded by it. How do we work together against an evil that harms us all, though it harms us in different ways? And it's going to be very difficult work. It's not going to be easy work. If it were easy, we wouldn't have to be in this kind of room right now. But even though it's not easy, we undertake it with the assurance of Jesus that the truth, however painful, will set us free. And it's with that assurance then that we enter into the spirit of these coming three days, knowing that the truth, no matter how painful it is, the truth will set us free, even though you might be uncomfortable in the process. So far, so good? Okay, good. So now the outline. To do this, we're going to follow a process of faith reflection that is very typical when Catholics, when Catholics engage on social justice issues, we follow a three, uh, threefold process or methodology. See, judge, act. See, judge, act. Some of you may be familiar with it. See, we start first by looking at what's going on. What is the problem? Then we judge. We reflect upon what's going on in the light of our faith. And then in light of our seeing and judging, we then act. What are we to do in response to what's going on? So you don't just, because people, when we come into this, we say, okay, give me five points. Let's solve the problem. Well, first you have to look at what's really going on and make sure you're tackling the right problem. It's only when you identify the problem accurately that you can then reflect on it by the faith and then act. So each of the three days will be devoted to one of these. Today we're going to look at seeing. We're going to try to understand what's going on. Tomorrow we will judge that in light of our faith. And then on Thursday we'll move to action. What are we to do? See, judge, Act. So today, see what's going on, 
What's the problem? And to do that, remember I said one of the first obstacles we face is that we don't know what we're talking about. So today we're going to try to understand what do we mean by racism. And to understand what we mean by racism, we need to draw clear distinctions between three terms that are often used interchangeably, but there are important differences between them. So we're going to distinguish between prejudice, discrimination, and racism. Oftentimes we use them interchangeably, but there are important differences between them. And because we don't, we're not always attentive to the differences, sometimes we're, we don't go, sometimes we, attack, we tackle the racism question and we treat it as if it were prejudice. We're going to see that these are related, but they are very distinctive and they're very different. To do this, so most people, when we talk about racism, we usually mean have a common sense understanding. We usually mean individual acts of meanness done to another person because of the color of his or her skin. We're talking about one individual acting as another individual because of the color of their skin. The usual way that it looks at it is that person A, usually but not always white, deliberately, consciously, intentionally does something negative to person B, usually but not always black or Latino or colored here in South Africa because of the color of their skin. We're talking about things that are easily identifiable. You can photograph them, you can take pictures of them, you can videotape them, and it's usually A to B. Now notice, I say usually but not always, usually but not always, because sometimes person A can be black doing something negative to person B who is white because of their skin color. And so we get in conversations about race and we say, well, everybody is racist. Black people can be racist, white people can be racist, so what's the problem? Now, this understanding is real. This is a problem. Common sense racism is a problem. But it's not the problem. So to get us to understand what the problem is, we need to distinguish from prejudice, discrimination, and racism. And to do that, we're going to study the thoughts of a social psychologist named Gordon Alcord who wrote a masterful presentation called The Nature of Prejudice. It's a classic work in which he wrote a definitive study to try to understand what we mean by prejudice. And he helps us understand the distinctions, the differences between prejudice, discrimination, and racism. So let's understand prejudice first. Prejudice. By prejudice, we mean negative racial attitudes and judgments. 
that are based upon false and inflexible generalizations. All. And that these false and inflexible generalizations are held in disregard of the facts that would contradict them. Whenever you argue with someone who is prejudiced, you sometimes feel like you're talking to a brick wall because nothing gets through. When someone is prejudiced and their prejudice is challenged, they generate as active and emotional resistance. The way a prejudice works is of the form, all X are Y, you are X, therefore you are Y. All men are brilliant and clever. Father Brian is a man, therefore Father Brian is brilliant and clever. You see how that works? Isn't it wonderful? Yes, <laughs> yes right. <laughs> now, all of us sometimes make prejudgments. We make judgments before we get all of the information. But just because we make prejudgments doesn't mean we're prejudiced. Prejudgments only become prejudices if we don't change our minds when we get new information. So, for example, maybe you made a prejudgment. You said, oh, I'm going to this lecture on racism, and the lecturer is going, is a priest, and priests are boring. I, have, I can't stand their homilies. They make no sense. They go on and on, and he's just kind of stupid. All the women are nodding their heads, all the priests are saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> but then you come to this lecture, and you're saying, wow, what a great speaker. I guess not all priests are, are boring. If you can change your mind and you get new information, you're not prejudiced. A prejudiced person will not change their mind when they have new information. So what does a prejudiced person do when they meet when they meet the exception to the rule, when they meet someone who doesn't conform to their, to their prejudice? So for example, if people believe that all blacks are lazy, dumb, and violent, but then they meet Obama, or they meet Oprah Winfrey, what, do the, what does a prejudiced person do with Obama and Oprah Winfrey? They can do one of three things. The first, exception. Oh, not a head nodding way around, okay. Obama is different. He's not like the rest. He's a good black person. He's not really black. In other words, when a prejudiced person meets someone who doesn't conform to the stereotype, they don't change their stereotype, they simply make you the exception. 
A second thing that can happen. All blacks are lazy, dumb, and violent, but then they meet Oprah and Obama. A prejudiced person may modify their stereotype and say, not all blacks are lazy, dumb, and violent, but most are. And because most are lazy, dumb, and violent, I am justified in treating all of them as if they are until they prove otherwise. Now it seems like they've made progress. They move from all to most. Not all blacks are this way, not all colors are this way, but you know most of them are, a lot of them are, and so therefore I'm justified in treating them as if they are until they prove otherwise. And what happens then is that the person who's the object of the prejudice, they are in a position of always having to prove themselves. We call that in the United States reasonable racism. <laughs> this is why police will sometimes target and target young black men and search them because, okay, not all blacks are criminals, but most of them are, and so I'm justified in treating them as they are. Or a taxi car driver will pass by me and pick up the white person that's coming there because I know, well, not all blacks are criminals, but most are, and therefore I'm just simply playing the odds. And when you have a society that is characterized by the belief that most belong to the stereotype, these negative judgments, you have the recipe for social suspicion and social resentment. A final thing that can happen is conversion. Where the person who is prejudiced says, Okay, not all black people are lazy, dumb, and violent. Only some are. But so are some whites. And so are some Asians. And so are some Latinos. In other words, one's race or ethnicity doesn't tell you anything about the person's interior attitudes. When a person has moved to that stage, then that person has moved to conversion. We'll be talking later on how does that happen. But this is what happens when a person who is truly prejudiced, what happens when they meet someone who doesn't fit the stereotype, the more common things they do is they make an exception. You're not really black, you're a good black, um, someone asked me when I was in the United States after Mass, and someone came up to me and said, you speak so well, Father, you don't sound like a black person. <laughs> and I said, well, how does a black person sound? Oh, you know, you, you lost your hot and tot accent. 
I said, my ancestors left Africa a long time ago. <laughs> but what they were saying was that you're different. They didn't change their stereotype. So exception, modification, conversion. That's prejudice. Negative, inflexible beliefs and judgments that are held in disregard of the facts that we contradict them. But now we're not at discrimination. Discrimination happens when we express our prejudice in action. Discrimination is when we act out our prejudice in behavior. And all court says that human beings are ingenious when it comes to expressing their prejudices in behavior. We find all kinds of ways of doing it. But he developed a five-fold scheme going from the least severe to the most severe. And he said, you can't dismiss the least severe actions because these least severe actions set the stage or the foundation for the more extreme forms that come. So we're gonna look at his five ways in which human beings express their prejudices and behavior. And we're going to see how it sets the stage for things that come later. The least severe is what he calls speech. We express our prejudices in name calling, in racist jokes, or in slurs. <clears throat> we often call this polite prejudice because we kind of excuse it. We say, oh, that's just the way your grandfather talks. You know how your uncle is. Or that was the way your aunt was raised. He doesn't really mean anything by it. That's just the way he talks. Or they tell a joke and you get offended. They say, what, are you too sensitive? You should just get over it. Some of you are smiling to yourself, but you've heard these things. All court reminds us that we should not dismiss negative speech because negative speech, jokes, name-calling, slurs, they set the stage for the later, for more severe forms that follow. You can't use more, you can't move to more severe forms without the negative speech. Because all negative speech does is it dehumanizes the group. And once you dehumanize the group, all kinds of bad things happen. Let me give you an example. During President Trump's presidential campaign, he engaged in all kinds of negative speech. He began his campaign announcement by talking about Mexican rapists. 
His campaign rallies have build the wall, build the wall between the United States and Mexico. He promised to adopt a Muslim travel ban, basically saying that all Muslims were terrorists. He criticized a Mexican judge who was really an American citizen, saying that because of his heritage, he should disqualify himself from being a judge in one of the cases against him. He talked about how there are so many bad hombres that were in our country. Lately, he's also talking about the immigrants who are infestations in the United States. He said, we can't allow immigrants to invade our country. Negative speech. But negative speech sets the stage for what comes. And so now in the United States, we have families being separated from their, at the border, children being taken from their parents. But it all came because negative speech sets the floor, the foundation for the more severe forms that follow. He's continued this throughout his presidency. He's rallying against immigrants, immigration, saying that Nigerian immigrants should not be allowed to come to the United States because once they come to the United States, Nigerian immigrants won't want to go back to their huts. He's also, and you hate to use the words, but these are his words. He said, why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here, Trump said, referring to African countries and to Haiti. And he said, we should bring in more people from countries like Norway. And then see how this sets the stage where a news commentator says, okay, yes, Trump shouldn't call them shithole countries. A little respect is in order. They are shithole nations. <laughs> Negative speech should not be dismissed simply because someone says, oh, it's just telling a joke, or that's just the way he talks. Negative speech sets the stage for the deeper, more severe forms that follow. And as we see now in the United States, negative speech has deep consequences. So, discrimination acting on purchase of behavior, jokes, name calling, slurs. The next is avoidance. We avoid those people that we fear or disdain. So because I believe that certain groups are dangerous or certain neighborhoods are dangerous, I put it on myself to not go in those neighborhoods. I don't go to them after dark. I don't go there because I'm afraid I'm going to get robbed because we know that these neighborhoods are full of criminals or whatever because of the, of the, of the, of the group, that, of the, the race of the people who live there. 
Next is avoidance, an exclusion rather. Not only do I go out of my way to avoid the people I fear, now I actively exclude them. Now I say they can't work here. They can't live here. We don't educate them here. Here we pass laws and policies that be, excuse me, they exclude people on the basis of their race or their ethnicity. So we move from name calling to avoidance to exclusion. The next more severe form of discrimination, physical attacks, violence, hate crimes. And here we move from avoidance and exclusion to actually physically destroying property, attacking persons, beating people up because of their race or their ethnicity, desecrating mosques or synagogues. And the final degree of discrimination of expressing prejudice and behavior, extermination, ethnic cleansing, genocide, where we systematically wipe out or exterminate the targeted group. Nazi Germany being a paradigmatic example, but we've seen examples of this in US history, what we did to our native peoples, the American Indians, whom we don't even talk about anymore because they're less than 1% of the population now. And even on the African continent, genocide is not unknown. So notice how we move from prejudice, negative attitudes, to discrimination, the acting out of those attitudes and beliefs. We're still not at racism. So let's take a look at the summarize where we've been. <clears throat> Common sense individual bias is real. People of every racial group can and do act negatively and think negatively about the others. Black people can think negatively about white people. White people can think negatively about colored people. Asians can think negatively about black people. All can think and act negatively. And such behavior is wrong. Just as you have black people calling for violence against white people, that is wrong, and it's wrong no matter who is doing it and who is saying it. It's wrong when white people do it. Black people is wrong when black people do it to white people. Such behavior is wrong no matter the person's race. So far, so good. But focusing on individual behaviors alone will not get us where we need to go. That's easy to do. But now we have to go deeper, we have to do more difficult work. Because when we talk about racism in the strictest sense, we're not talking about prejudice, we're not talking about discrimination, we're talking about a society. 
We're talking about a society that is built upon white privilege. There's a whole lot coming out of white privilege. Because whenever I say that, we see the anxiety rise in the room. By white privilege, I mean that because of the way a society is, it's as if white people have an invisible backpack of benefits and privileges and advantages that they can enjoy simply by being white, that because of the way society is structured, are denied to those who are non-white. Now, both in the United States and in South Africa, notice, this is where things get very interesting. So far, everyone's okay with prejudice and discrimination. Because blacks and whites can both do it to each other. But when we're talking about racism, we're talking about the way a society is structured. So, let's look at, at privilege. Privilege refers to the unearned and even the unwanted advantages and benefits given to those who have a quality that society prizes and denied to those who don't have that characteristic. A privilege it refers to it's an unearned and even an unwanted advantage that you have simply because you have a quality that society prizes. They're denied to those who don't have that characteristic. Let's take it out of the realm of race for a moment. Let's talk about gender. Don't worry, the men will say, let's get back to race pretty soon. <laughs> I remember the first time I became aware that because I was a man, I had some advantages that women didn't have. I was in university, I was in an honors course in English, and we were studying Shakespeare. We were studying Hamlet. I hate Hamlet. Because to be or not to be, it's like, oh, make a decision, do something, okay? <laughs> but one of my female classmates came up to me and said, have you ever noticed how the professor pays more attention to the men when they speak in class than to the women? And I gave a very enlightened answer. I said, get out of here, no way. So we did an experiment. The next class, my friend raised her hand and she made a comment. The professor politely acknowledged it. We watched the clock, 30 seconds go by. I raised my hand and simply paraphrased what she had already said. And the professor looked at me and said, Mr. Massingale, that is a very profound and astute observation. And my friend turned to me and said, Don't you so? 
Sailor, we decided, well, we said, well, wait a minute. I was the only black in the classroom. Maybe he's trying to be nice to me, to welcome me. So we got one of our white male friends in on it. And he hated the professor, so he's more than willing to help us. So the next class, my friend raises her hand and makes a comment. The professor politely acknowledges it. We watch the clock, 30 seconds go by. Our white male friend raises his hand and simply paraphrased what she had said. The professor went to the board, wrote it down on the board and said, in my 25 years of teaching, no one has ever made the connection that you have made. And again, she said, you saw. I didn't even know it was happening because privilege seems normal to those who have it. I didn't ask for it. It was simply there because it was something that society prizes. I had to work for my marks in my in my in my in the class, but so did my female friend. And no matter how hard she worked. Her mark would never be as high as mine. I didn't earn that privilege. I didn't even want it. I was shocked. <coughs> but because I was born into that society, I had a gender privilege, an invisible backpack of benefits. It didn't make me a bad person. We're talking about the way our society is structured and the assumptions that go along with it. That some are given benefit and advantage, others have disadvantage. When we go to race, the same thing happens. That when we talk about racism, we're talking about a society where those who have a characteristic white skin have advantages and benefits that white non-whites don't have and that they are usually invisible to whites because they think that everybody has that, that it's normal. Until those who don't have it speak up. So in the United States, one author has developed a list of 46 things that white people can enjoy that people of color usually don't. 
such as if I need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area where I would want to live. Sometimes people of color aren't even shown that there are houses that are available. I can think over many options, social, political, and professional, without asking whether a person of my race would be accepted or allowed to do what I do. I can be sure if I need legal or medical help, my race will not work against me. We're talking about the way a society is structured. That some are given benefit and advantage and others are denied it. Another way to look at this is to say that racism is a culture. Racism is a culture. Usually, we look at society. We look at the visible social institutions, patterns, and policies. Racism is a culture. It's the underlying meanings and values that inform this visible way of life. It's the values, the virtues, and the vices of a culture. It's the underlying fears, anxieties, and delusions. These get visible shape in social institutions, patterns, and policies. Now, what all too often happens is that we change visible social institutions but we don't interrogate or look at the underlying culture. If you change social institutions and patterns, but you don't change the underlying culture, the underlying culture will express itself in new ways. It's like when my mother, when I was young, my mother had a vegetable garden. And by vegetable garden meant that she decided what would get planted. But she was not the gardener. She said that God gave her five gardeners, her children. <laughs> so mom was the architect of the garden. We were the gardeners. And so she'd go out there, she tells you, plant here, and then we have to weed. Oh. So I would go out and I would just pull things up by the surface so she couldn't see them. And my mom would say, no, 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 you have to go deep. You have to get the root of the weed and get it out because if you don't get the, weed, the root of it, the weed will come back. I said, but mom, you can't see it. Who cares? And she said, no, you go back and do it again. And this time you do, do it right and you get the weed, the root of it. All too often, we are like, like, like me. We pull out the things we can see. But we don't get to the root of the problem. It's as if you create a society where you abolish the visible signs of apartheid. But you don't look at the underlying culture that produced it. <laughs> 
The other thing about culture, the fears, anxieties, and delusions, these values, is that we learn them automatically as children. We learn them automatically as children and we become malformed. We go through cultural malformation. We learn a set of meanings and values that are attached to skin color and skin differences. And we learn them without our conscious awareness. We absorb them simply by being immersed in everyday reality. No one sits us down and says that black people are dumb or that white people are better. But we learn them simply by being involved in our culture as part of our cultural malformation. And so we learn associations of criminality and incompetence and laziness and stupidity. And we absorb them without even knowing what they what we're doing. And they become the basis for who we are and who they are. Let me give you an example. I was once talking to a group of women religious, we used to call nuns, the women religious. And during the break, one of the sisters came to me and said, Father, you are so intelligent and so articulate. You must have been taught by one of our sisters. <laughs> and I turned to her and said, no, I was taught by my mother and my father. And she looked at me and she didn't know what to, what, I said, sister, would you have ever gone to a white priest and said, you are so intelligent and articulate, you must have been taught by one of our sisters. Didn't you assume that the only way I could be intelligent and articulate is if a white person made me this way? She turned and walked away and didn't talk to me for the rest of the weekend. I didn't call her a racist. She didn't intentionally set out to hurt me. She was going on her social conditioning. She was going out of what she had heard, out of what she believed, out of what she grew up with. She had been culturally now formed and this became part of her own way of being. She didn't intentionally set out to hurt me. She was going out of her conditioning. This is why I say in the book that people can suffer from unconscious racism. It's a very long quotation, but I think it's important that I think I'm saying in the United States also can work here in South Africa. <clears throat> the author says, Americans share a common historical and cultural heritage in which racism has played and still plays a dominant role. 
Because of this shared experience, we also inevitably share many ideas, attitudes, and beliefs that attach significance to an individual's race and induce negative feelings and opinions about non-whites. At the same time, most of us are unaware of our racism. We do not recognize the ways in which our cultural experience has influenced our beliefs about race or the occasions on which those beliefs affect our actions. In other words, a large part of the behavior that produces racial discrimination is influenced by unconscious racial motivation. We go off of our conditioning and we don't even know that we are doing it because we've absorbed the culture's understanding of the negative meanings that we attach to dark skin color. Now, just because it's unconscious doesn't mean it's not harmful. Let me show you exactly what I mean. You may remember that New Orleans in the United States was devastated by a hurricane, Hurricane Katrina. At the height of the hurricane, a controversy arose because of two news photographs that showed people in the same place, at the same time, doing the same things, but described very differently. At the top, you see a young black man who's wading through water with a bag full of goods. And the caption reads, a young man walks through chest deep flood water after looting a grocery store in New Orleans on Tuesday, August 30, 2005. On the bottom, you see two white people wading through water with bags as well. This time it says, Two residents wade through chest deep water after finding bread and soda from a local grocery store. <laughs> He's looting. They are finding. Neither one paid for anything that they have. Now, it wasn't that they sat down and said, oh, these are black people, they're looting, this is a white person they're finding. They went off automatic pilot. They went off what their associations were. They went off what they all know about black people and white people. Now, after controversy, these photographs were taken down, but, you know, the internet, nothing's ever gone forever. But this led to major, major implications. During a, during a, during a storm, we heard that there are people in public shelters who were looting and rioting and raping and the, the, the city was deemed too unsafe. So they suspended rescue operations for 48 hours. Only to find out later that none of it was true. But it was accepted as true. Why? Because there were predominantly black people that were left in the city. So when you heard that people were being violent, 
It fit what everybody knew. And many people died because of it. Something we also need to understand is that this could also work with black people by ourselves. Because we've learned the same negative messages. And we can sometimes have our own, what we call, internalized racism. Because of this, I'm going to talk about this later, police assume that black, young black men are violent and dangerous. And so black young men are being killed in situations where white men would not be. And this leads to a very sad thing where in the United States, young black parents have to talk to their young black boys and tell them how to behave with the police. This is a cartoon, but it talks about something that's very real. In the background, you see a young boy being killed by police officers. And these parents are talking to their young son and saying, no, son, this isn't the birds and the bees talk. This is about you coming home alive. While we know you're just a child, to some people, you're an adult. An adult who's dangerous and guilty of something, even if you've done nothing wrong. So if a policeman stops you for any reason, do what he says. If you can't make out what he's saying, don't go closer to ask. Don't pull out your phone to call us. Even if he yells at you or pulls out his gun and you get scared, don't run. Just put your hands in the air. No, it isn't right, but we don't have the luxury of being right. We want you home alive. <coughs> when I was a young boy, when I got my driver's license at age 16, my parents didn't say congratulations. They sat me down and they told me that if I was ever pulled over by the police to put my hand on the steering wheel at 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock, to not move my hands until the officer said I could, to only move one hand at a time, only when the officer said so. Why is this necessary? It's because we live in a culture of fears and beliefs and anxieties based on race. And they have visible expression in social institutions and policies. Yes, we change the laws but the underlying culture still remains. 
This is why we talk about racism as a culture of white supremacy. And by white supremacy, we mean the conviction or the assumption that the country belongs to white people or it should belong to white people in a way that it does not or should not belong to non-white people. That white supremacy is still a reality even after the visible laws that govern racial segregation, even after the laws have changed, the underlying culture stays the same and it finds new forms of expression. This means in the United States at least, it'll be interesting to see how well this is true in South Africa, that the country has marked by a fundamental racial ambivalence. And by racial ambivalence, we mean that most whites in the United States endorse equality of opportunity in the abstract. In the abstract, they believe that all races are equal, that blacks and whites and Asians and Latinos should all enjoy equal opportunities. But they endorse this less likely or to lesser degrees if equal opportunity leads to blacks being in frequent social contact or if it involves significant numbers of blacks. So for example, if a school is only 10% black, it's okay. If it's 13% black, it's okay. But once it's 20% black, then it becomes not so okay. And if it's 30% black, then people start leaving. or if it leads to blacks being promoted to positions of significant social power and influence. Many people were fine until we had Obama. But then when you have a black president, all bets are off. And so the study concluded that there is a desire to denounce blatant racial injustices and yet preserve a situation of white social dominance and privilege. So that most white Americans both want interpersonal decency, or we don't call each other names, or we treat each other nice, but they also are committed to structural inequality so there is still inequality in education and employment and in the upper realms of leadership, but interpersonal decency. Martin Luther King said it best. He said that most white Americans were committed to decency and improvement but not genuine equality. This is something we often hear in America. Well, things are better than they were before. Things aren't so bad now. What more do you want? And King would say it's because we're committed to decency and improvement, but not genuine equality. He drew a distinct distinction between desegregation 
which is getting rid of the legal barriers and the obvious signs of offense. He said, most white Americans were okay with desegregation, but when it came time to genuine integration, most whites said no. Yes, eliminate the obvious legal barriers, but when it comes to a genuine welcome and acceptance, when it comes to a real sharing of power and responsibility, King said that most white Americans abandoned the struggle for civil rights when it became time to move from desegregation to genuine integration. And so then he concluded, he said this in 1967 and we're still living it out today in 2018. He said, the great majority of Americans are suspended between two opposing attitudes. They are uneasy with injustice, but not willing to pay a significant price to eradicate it. It'll be interesting to see how well this works in South Africa. One final factor to know. One of the things that fuels racial divisions is isolation. Isolation fuels ignorance, indifference, and fear. And in the United States, at least, one of the major obstacles to having an intelligent or even an intelligent conversation about race is that in the United States, white people basically talk to other white people. In fact, we found out that research has shown that for white Americans, 91% of their social networks are white. And in fact, 75% of white Americans have social networks that are, are entirely white. That they don't talk to any person of color. Isolation fuels ignorance, indifference, and fear. We'll, talk back, we'll come back to that on the, on the last day. If people are isolated from each other, then you cannot have a just society because there's no way for negative information to be corrected. And all you have is what you learned as a child or what you're told in the media. Let me give a short story about this. Um, I studied in Rome, as Father said earlier, I got my doctorate there. And one of the things I was most concerned when I went to Rome was um, where were they going to get my hair cut? <laughs> so the first time I went to an Italian barber, and it did not, was not good. That he took his scissors and he tried cutting my hair with the scissors and it did not work. It, right? it, was, it was ugly. So I found out that there was a Cameroonian uh, priest and he had a pair of barber clippers. And so I said, I'll go to him because at least he knows what my hair is supposed to look like. So we sit there because he's from Cameroon, he spoke French, but my French was not good. And um, he, his English was not good. So we spoke Italian to each other. So he's asking me about my family, and so he's asking me, he says, um, how many fathers are there in your family? And I said, one. 
So all your brothers and sisters, do you have the same father? Yes. Well, has your father ever been to jail? I said, no. And your brothers, have they never been to jail? I said, no. I said, why are you asking me questions? He said, because this is what we hear in Africa about black people. That all of you have many fathers, and many mothers, and many, have, many, have, many, have many men who father their kids, that you're all going to jail. And I said, isolation fuels indifference, ignorance, and fear. He learned all of these things from American media. Here, and so that's why when many Africans come to the United States, many Africans are afraid of black people in, the, in America because that's what you've heard about us. We have to ask ourselves the benefits from that. I want to end on this note. There are many ways to understand racism. It's a political issue, it's a social issue, but for people of faith, racism is a soul sickness. It's that warping of the human spirit that enables people to create societies <coughs> where some are less equal than others. I remember um, after I was walking, traveling in New York's airport, and a news report came over about an uncle who was grieving because his young nephew had been killed by the police. And he was overcome with grief and emotion. He was angry. And as I was watching the news monitors, many of the white Americans who were watching the news monitors, their faces were frozen with hostility and coldness. And I wondered, what is it that we cannot even allow uncle to grieve and we can't put ourselves in the situation of someone who's lost their own nephew. At a Black Lives Matter protest rally, there's a white man and black men are walking together with two signs. The white man with the sign saying, is his life worth less than mine? And the black man asking, is his life worth more than mine? And that is the challenge that racism puts before us. Whose lives are worth more? Whose lives are worth less? So we're going to have our teach, but just to summarize where we've been. The common sense understanding of racial bias is real. People of every race can and do think and act negative about each other, 
And that behavior is wrong no matter who is doing it. The focusing on individual behaviors is not enough. It doesn't take us deep enough. We have to also change the culture that confers unearned benefits and privileges to one group over the others. That means that if we're going to work for racial justice, we have to challenge not only the individual behaviors, but also the cultural mindset that says that one race is superior to another. What we will do now is if there are any questions you'd like to ask uh, Father Brian, or if there are any clarifications you would like, we'll just give uh, a couple of minutes over to that. I Just to say it's a real, real privilege to be here. So I, I work in the transformation, diversity and inclusion space mm -hmm. where a lot of what we work with is racial um, discrimination and racism. Mm -hmm. And I, I was just so struck by where you started, where you spoke about if we don't address racial injustice, we'll be ineffective in working with any other social injustices. Yes. And the thing that I've been struggling with is this, is... To what extent is it racial injustice that we need to work with, or can one divorce that from economic injustice? Mm. So because of the intersection between them, um, I guess what I'm, well, my, my question is, is it about working with racial injustice at the expense of not addressing issues around class and economic inequality, which you did speak to later around you know, who sits with the power and the decision-making and that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's really what I'd, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on that. Okay, thank you. My question is, uh, you, you said that racism also has to do with white privilege. Mm -hmm. So do you think there'll ever be uh, a time where there's such a thing as black privilege? <laughs> okay. You people don't hold back, do you? Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Two more questions. Um, it's not really a question, but more uh, something that you might want to respond to. Some years ago, when I was marking one of my students, I penalized him for what he'd written was um, the racist policy of affirmative action. But I penalized him not for saying that, but because he treated it as something which required no argument. In other words, he just assumed that everybody agreed it. Mm. And I realized in retrospect, probably everybody he mixed with felt exactly the same. Therefore, he felt he had no need to justify himself. Mm. Okay. Well, let's... Oh, you want one more? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm trying to remember all these now. Okay, good. May I just add gender to the First Lady's question? Mm. Okay. So let's deal with the questions in terms of the relationship between race and economic inequality. When in the United States, this is one of the things that we, people want to do is they say, well, let's not deal with race. The real issue is class. And the thing is that, yes, there are real class differences, that one of the most reliable effects or consequences of racial injustice is that it puts people at economic disadvantage. And so there are real relationships between the two, but they cannot be simply subsumed one to the other. So for example, people want to sometimes in the United States say, well, they really don't have racism anymore because after all you have poor whites and then you have you know, Michael Jordan and LeBron James. 
you know, these basketball players. And I say, well, wait a minute, you, you don't cancel out race by looking at very wealthy black people and very poor white people. What you have to do is you have to look at people of similar social class, and then you see the difference that race makes. And so while indeed economic exploitation and injustice is real, it cannot be equated as the same thing as racial injustice. But the two do have a significant overlap because one of the most reliable consequences and ramifications of racial, racial injustice is precisely that it puts people at an economic disadvantage, or to put it more bluntly, people are economically exploited and we use race as the pretext for doing so. And so it's true that, so this is why if you're going to try to have measures to alleviate poverty, you cannot overlook the racial dimension that is there. Because at least in the United States, and I'm not sure what's going on here in South Africa, we can talk more about that this afternoon, is that sometimes people will support policies that will deal with the economically poor white, but do not have an equal impact for the economically poor black. And so this is why, we, the other thing we find in the United States is that even poor whites will vote for politicians that are opposed to their own economic interest because of their racial identity. So for example, President Trump, his social policies are inimical to poor working class white Americans. And yet they continue to support him strongly because of his racial agenda. The other thing we've seen is that even in Trump's gender either, too, in that in the United States, the vast majority of white women voted for President Trump even after those vile things that he said about women. And so even though race and class are both important that we need to deal with, um, dealing with class alone will not be sufficient to deal with the racial injustice issue. In terms of the um, situation of whether it be a time of black supremacy, mm, I can safely say in the United States, no. <laughs> Um, simply because one of the, while there are lots of cousin similarities between South Africa and the United States, one of the dissimilarities is that here in this country, you have a situation of black majority, 79%, don't I understand, and only 9% of the country being white. Um, we would, in the United States, it's just kind of the opposite. They're about 13% it's African-American. And so even though we had an African-American president, President Obama, we didn't have a situation of black supremacy, although people like Donald Trump kept saying that he's, he's oppressing white people. And it's like, well, no, he couldn't possibly, or he, he hates white people. I said, he couldn't possibly, he couldn't be elected if he hated white people, you know, but these are the kinds of things that they say. Can there come a time when that happens? Um, if if there comes a point where black political power 
is matched by black economic power. And if there's a conscious decision to use black political and economic power to consciously disadvantage whites, then you can have that scenario. So yes, it's a, I think it's possible. But one of the things we have to ask ourselves is, is that real? Or is that a fear that's there? And that fear keeps us from engaging the present reality that despite black political power, there still is an underlying culture of white privilege and benefit. So theoretically, yes, if black political power and black economic power are both used to deliberately exclude or to oppress white people. So possible. But in the United States, that's, I can't even imagine a situation where that could possibly be. In terms of the arguments pro and con affirmative action, we're going to what in some contexts are called positive discrimination. In the United States, this is um, one of the most pressing debates or whatever that keeps coming up. Um, but the problem becomes that when we look at who have been the beneficiaries of affirmative action, we find that in the United States, the people who have been most of beneficiaries of affirmative action in some situations have been white women. And in the university level, white men. One of the dirty secrets, oh, not dirty, one of the untold secrets in American higher education is that if we admitted students simply on the basis of standardized test scores, our universities would be overwhelmingly white women. That basically, because white women basically study harder than white men do. I mean, I'm not saying anything against white men, but you know, I'm just simply saying that's the objective truth. And so what happens is that universities, because they want to keep a gender balance, actually exercise positive discrimination toward white men to bring them into the university. So, so yeah, it's kind of a strange thing. But again, we don't talk about that. To hear the public discourse in the United States, you would think that our, our public institutions are being overwhelmed by these hordes of incompetent people of color, whereas that's not what's going on in reality, though. My question is regarding the place of emotions when you become to discuss the issue of racism. Mm -hmm. Do you think in some way the current president of the United States is helping at least some people in the country to see what we're really like, to see what is going on? Mm. I have to write down these. This is good. With <laughs> respect to the definition and the understanding of what uh, racism uh, is, um, I try to see back, for example, in Cameroon, uh, trying to understand with respect to the social dynamics. The same things, for example, that the society gives meaning to between black and white happens. The same issues between English-speaking and French-speaking Cameroonians. Mm -hmm. So the same thing that we give a definition to be racism, which means cultural kind of uh, underlying uh, values, assumptions, and the rest that discriminates between people. Mm -hmm. I was just trying to imagine, don't you think that the word uh, racism can be extrapolated to other forms of 
should I say, social kind of uh, discriminations? Mm -hmm. Thank you for the question. Regarding the role of emotions, I think that if one is going to have um, honest conversations about these issues, one has to understand that these are issues that are very deeply emotionally laden. And indeed, that's the reason why we sometimes avoid having a conversation because we're afraid of what's going to erupt in the room. Um, and so one of the things I do in, when I teach these things is to tell students that, yes, we're going to be having conversations that are going to be very difficult and connect conversations that your parents go out of their way to avoid, but I think that you can handle it. And I find that when I put it that way, the students rise to the level that, of the expectation. The other thing that we need to do is to realize that I was reflecting on this um, last night, and it'll be interesting to hear dialogue about this later this afternoon, is that I think that, yes, in many ways, the emotions are very raw, and because, indeed, the experience here in South Africa is still very, very recent. And so, yes, I think that emotions are very important that we acknowledge them, but not that we stay fixated on them. Because it's easy to just speak out of rage or anger, and anger is important. We'll talk more about that probably on, on Thursday, but anger can't be the place where you end. That we need to also then find ways of having conversations that honor the, uh, the emotions, but don't let the emotions hijack the conversation or the discussion. But indeed, yes, these are very emotional and very difficult issues. If they weren't, we wouldn't have been having a cold three days about them. Let's be honest about that. The second question is about isn't Trump actually helping the situation? I wrote a column for uh, a Catholic magazine, and I talked about the um, Christian spiritual concept of the dark night of the soul. And it basically what that means is there comes a time in a Christian life where everything seems to fall apart. <laughs> And paradoxically, it's when our previous understandings of God and faith fall apart that we can then move to more mature ways of being. And part of what I will probably talk about a little tomorrow is how President Trump represents the shadow side of America. He represents the America that was always there, but that we kind of pretended wasn't. And so now we have to confront questions like, who are we in ways that we never did before? For example, just before I came here, the country is being convulsed with the horror that we are a country that splits parents from their children that we put children in cages, that we have public officials that mock the fact when we protested that a child with Down syndrome is being separated from the parent and this public official you know, mocks those who are concerned. 
And now what's facing America is that we now have to stand up and say, who are we? What do we stand for? And there's been a, a galvanization of protests and an upswell of, of counter voices in a way that didn't exist before. It wasn't that these voices weren't there, but we always said that, okay, these voices are there, but we don't have to worry because even if the Congress passes these laws, President Obama will veto them and it'll never nothing will ever happen. But now we can't be complacent because we don't have that safety net. And because of that, the country is now very in a very vulnerable state because now we have to confront what do we do? What do we do? And so is he helping? Potentially, yes. But it's still, the jury is out in terms of where this is going to go. I, I try to be optimistic, but we're at a crossroads in America, frankly. And finally, in terms of the English and French-speaking divide in, um, in Cameroon and the relevance of this material to other forms of social discrimination. I do believe that much of what I say, that racism can be understood to be a subset of a broader category of xenophobia. The fear of the other, the fear of the one that's marked as stranger or foreigner. And so insight into racism can be, give us insight into parallel forms of discrimination such as xenophobia and in other places where um, the, dis the discrimination isn't between black and white, but between, for example, various tribal groups, et cetera. So I think that this presentation gives us insights into that. I'm gonna keep focusing on the racial divide because I think that's the one that's most pressing, at least in my country and sometimes here in, in South Africa. But I don't want to dismiss or disregard the fact that this has deep relevance to other forms of xenophobia which also afflict too many other parts of the world. So absolutely, there's a, there are parallel insights that can be drawn. Wherever you find one group that is privileged and protecting its privilege at the expense of others. Absolutely. <laughs>